Hey, welcome. Glad you're joining us. Welcome to Grace Church, the North Pole, right? If you're here in the Akron area, uh, you know, we got hit with a snowstorm and there is just snow everywhere. It looks like we're in Alaska, the North Pole, something like that. But hopefully you're doing well. I'm glad you're joining us from the warmth and comfort of your home or in your car, wherever you're listening. Uh, I'm Dan, if I've never met you. I'm one of the pastors here and love the fact that you're checking things out here. We're in this conversation. You jumped in right in the middle. Uh, we've been saying it's an essential and necessary conversation that Pastor Aiden and I have wanted to have with you. It's a conversation that's geared towards followers of Jesus, the church, but here's what we're saying, it's vital. If you're watching this, listening to this, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I think this conversation's vital for you. It would be for me if I was you, like, I think it's clearing up some confusion, maybe some questions you might have. Uh, We've been saying this, these last two years have been anything but normal. Uh, We already know that, right? Don't need to make the case for that. They've been disruptive and dividing and for some of us disappointing and and very hard and frustrating, created anger for others, grief, right? They've been anything but normal. And a lot of people are like, I just want to get back to normal. Like I hear it all the time. Like, when are we getting back to normal? And, And what Pastor Aiden and I have said is this, is that for the church, the most effective response may be to never go back to normal, right? That, that, that maybe normal isn't what we should be shooting for because we said this is like a crucial moment for everybody and anybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus. A crucial moment to look honestly and humbly at ourselves uh, individually and collectively and then to lean in and listen, maybe differently, maybe intently uh, to the teachings of Jesus. Maybe uh, to listen to those teachings that have been easy to ignore over the years. Uh, We've been looking at a passage, if you have your Bibles, just go there. John 13 to 17 is this little five chapters where Jesus is teaching his disciples. John kind of records events over years and then he slows things down and he records this conversation that happens over several hours. And so in John 13 to 17, we kind of see that that Jesus is looking at his followers. All of them are going to eventually desert him in a few hours. One's going to betray him into the hands of his killers. One's going to deny that he knows them before breakfast. The religious leaders are going to hand him over to the government officials to be executed, hopefully to squelch his voice. And yet he's going to die on that cross, be buried and rise again. But he's talking to his followers because he's like, nothing's normal. Nothing's going back to normal, but I want y'all to lead into what's next. And there's some really important things. If you haven't uh, been checking out uh, the last couple weeks, if I could just summarize it this way, I think Jesus wants them to know y'all can go back to your normal lives. Distracted, busy, attending events, going with the flow. Like you can go back to just normal doing that. And if you do that, you'll preserve a status quo cultural Christianity that will have no impact will lose its effectiveness and not have influence. I think that's what he's saying. Or or you can stay close to me, Jesus, like connected to me, following the Spirit, and you'll produce fruit. And the fruit that you'll produce is this community of abnormal love and abnormal unity in a culture. And show yourselves to be true disciples of me. I think that's what Jesus is saying. That normal, going back to normal, might be the very thing that keeps us from being effective. That keeps us from having influence. That keeps us from having impact. Or to use Jesus' words, that keep us from having a saltiness. 
Uh, Jesus says this, y'all are the salt. He's talking about followers of Jesus of the earth. But if it loses, that salt loses its saltiness, its effectiveness, its influence, how's it going to be made salty again? No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Uh, this particular little passage comes right in the middle of Jesus' first recorded sermon. Jesus burst on the scene. This will help us today. He burst on the scene and he begins announcing that the kingdom of God is here. And, and this is part of his kingdom mantra, so to speak. Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom of God. Like somewhere over 80 times, he mentions it. And he was so obsessed by it, he talked about it so much that his followers wanted to take him by force and make him king. They, they wanted to stir up this revolt and get some things done and kind of restore a sense of normal or at least what their sense of normal would be. But listen, but Jesus... And his message and this kingdom he was talking about, ready? It's anything but normal. He, he talked about a kingdom that was anything but normal. In, in this kingdom he's talking about, people who normally weren't blessed, all of a sudden were blessed. He, he starts by saying, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are those who mourn. In his kingdom, anything but normal, instead of revenge, he talked about forgiveness. Instead of change coming like a bulldozer, it's more like scattering a seed. Uh, greatness, greatness was something that, that instead of seizing power, greatness was more like serving others. In his kingdom, anything but normal, because he said things like, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. In his kingdom, anything but normal. Instead of him putting together an army and revolting, he was a king who eventually would carry his cross and die for the ones who were killing him. And eventually he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His kingdom, friends, Jesus' kingdom and his message was anything but normal. The message of the kingdom of God is anything but normal. And that is why devotion to him as king in his kingdom cannot, will not, translate into simply nice, normal lives. His kingdom is where he rules and where people are devoted to him as king. That's what it means. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 6, in the middle of the same sermon, he says, Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Has enough wor Tomorrow, worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, Jesus, when he gathers these disciples in John 13 and 17, he's like, he, th this comes right at the heels of, he's talking all about this kingdom. That's why for today, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The sermon in a sentence, how about that, is kingdom devotion. Devotion to the kingdom of God and Jesus as the king must replace cultural idolatry. Must replace cultural idolatry. And let's stop for a minute because this, this idea, like, right, I already know what you're thinking, right? Idolatry, kind of an Old Testament deal, isn't it? Idolatry doesn't, more primitive cultures, not our sophisticated culture, that isn't something we deal with. That's kind of an ancient world problem. Uh, theologian uh, William Stringfellow says this, rather long quote, but stay with me on it. He says, in the contemporary mind, idolatry is generally identified with pagan rites. 
in ancient times, primitive cultures today. That's what we just said, right? Few modern men in the post-industrial societies of North America and Western Europe consciously acknowledge their idolaters. The term is certainly not part of our daily speech. You probably don't say it much, right? Nor do we commonly ponder its prevalence or present practice. Yet idolatry, he says, is pervasive in every time in culture, no less now than yesterday, no less in Washington than Gomorrah, no less among sophisticates than Aborigines. After all, is there any essential difference between middle-class people idolizing their children, as they do in America, and heathens venerating their ancestors? Was the ferocious homage exacted by Adolf Hitler less idolatrous than the allegiance commanded by Caesar Augustus? Indeed, it might be argued that contemporary Western man is more enslaved to idols than his supposedly less civilized counterpart precisely because he is less ignorant about the world in which he lives and because his favorite idols are the familiar realities of daily life, religion, work, Money, status, sex, patriotism, all idols are imposters of God. He's suggesting that idolatry is still prevalent and maybe even more of a problem now. Not only is it a problem, but the truth is sometimes we misunderstand what idols are. We think of them like statues and voodoo dolls, yet Tim Keller in his book that I would recommend to you, Counterfeit God, says we think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the best things in life. An idol is anything that becomes more important to you than God. Idols are good things that we take and make ultimate things. Or as author John Tyson says, the persistent temptation is to turn good things into God things. Even people who don't claim a religion worship something as if they did. Idols are when we take anything, good, bad, or in somewhere in between, and elevate it to the ultimate thing in our life. And here's what happens. When that begins to happen, it distorts our devotion from Jesus, the king, and his kingdom. And what happens is we begin to wrap our identity around whatever we set up as an idol in our life. We begin to prioritize our time around whatever we set up as a idol in our life, and we pledge our allegiance to whatever it is that we set up as an idol in our life, which leads Tim Keller to say this, an idol becomes more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, and to your identity, who you are, then it is an idol. And then he says this, and I quote, Our hearts are idol factories. The truth is, Many authors do this, that there are several kinds of idols like that get identified. There are personal idols. Like, what is that? These are things that maybe we personally look to for meaning that only God can provide. 
things that, that maybe bring us worth, things that we wrap our identity around. They could be all kinds of things. Romantic love, family, money, power, success, achievement, fitness, right? Health, beauty, even religion can become a, a personal idol because our hearts are idol factories. We're always like attaching to these. And, and they become competitive with a kingdom devotion, a devotion to Jesus as king. Uh, there, there's not just these, but there's, there's cultural idols. Cultural idols are things that our culture would elevate as important. In order to fit in, we must elevate those things as well. These are institutions. They show up in society's values. They show up in traditions, expectations. Our sports teams can become idols, right? Our financial security can become idols. Like, that is a cultural idol. The American dream. Even political ideologies can become idols. They can be. Uh, it led Keller to say this, the increasing political polarization and bitterness we see in our country in U.S. politics today is a sign that we have made political activism into a form of religion or worship, idol worship. And what is interesting about that is depending on what side of the aisle you're on, and I'm not suggesting one or the other, right? Depends on what idols you choose to harp on. Author John Tyson says this, conservatives have traditionally focused on heart idols while liberals have traditionally focused on cultural idols. We then pit our forms of idolatry against each other and moralize the gods we have chosen to serve. But our idols are deadly because they distort, deceive, and destroy. Heart idols distort our lives and cultural idols distort our world. Idols turn, up the, turn the world upside down. Idols turn the world upside down and convince us that this upside down world, the way we look at the world, is normal. <laughs> it's just normal. Jesus, when he busts on the scene, was a king with a message that was anything but normal in this upside down world. And his message was of a right side up kingdom. He was the king who preached a message of the kingdom and demonstrated the way of this kingdom. And as he prepares to leave in John 13 through 17, he doesn't want them to fall for the idols of normal. Neither does he want us to fall for the idols of normal. He wants them to continue with a devotion to him in his kingdom and to what's next. He helps them identify idols, I believe, in John 13 through 17. And in so doing, I think he'll help expose some fires. Just several things today. Just several things. He's telling his disciples, when we get to John 13 to 17, he's leaving. As you can imagine, uh, he says, you're not able to come where I'm going. These guys get worked up. Because like, if you're our king, like they still kind of had this vision of, taking him and making him king and they would overthrow the present powers and they'd get things done and they would alleviate the trouble they're in and then we can get back to normal. <laughs> Their hope was in replacing the current system for a better one because somehow that would be normal. And he said, I'm leaving. And it troubled them. 
which led him to say this. You have your Bibles open in John 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. My, my father's house has many rooms. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Almost as though to reinforce this idea of don't let your hearts be troubled, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be what? Troubled. Don't be afraid. He's like, he's trying to make a point. He says, I don't want your hearts, the, the word he uses there is to be stirred up and agitated and worried and frustrated and angst. Things that might describe the last two years. He says, don't be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'll come back. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I and I have told you now before it happens so that when it happens, you will believe. These guys are stirred up. As you can imagine, because Jesus is leaving. And he's saying to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm leaving y'all here because I'm going to prepare a place, but I'm coming back. And what further complicates it is a little later he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Like that. But in this world, you will have what? Trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, don't be shocked when trouble comes. Trouble is just part of living in this world. Listen, part of living in this world, particularly Northeast Ohio, is that you get hit with a snowstorm. <laughs> and if you're me, you have two snowblowers. Both of them were used when they were given to me, so they're older snowblowers. But when the worst snowstorm we have of the season happens, as happened this past week, I have two snowblowers and I'm good to go. And so I start up the one snowblower and I start blowing my driveway and eventually that snowblower quits, but no problem because I got a second snowblower. And I go start it up, starts right up and it starts blowing my driveway and it, what? Quit. As the snow piled up, he's like, in this world you're going to have trouble. I, my trouble pretty minor, right? I think what he's saying is the trouble is part of living in this world. It comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Trouble causes uncertainty. We like certainty. Trouble is unpredictable. We like predictability. Trouble creates consternation, worry, anger, frustration. I think when trouble comes, now just think of it, it surprises us. For some reason, particularly in our culture, it surprises us. Uncertainty begins to unravel our love for certainty. What happens is unpredictableness creates worry. What's going to happen? Because we want to know. When we lose control, it frustrates us, even makes us angry. What's Jesus trying to teach when we put these things together? Get your pen out and write this down. I think what he's saying is when the trouble in the world stirs trouble, in my heart 
it may reveal idols in my life. Now, he uses two different words in the text for trouble. He says, when trouble, the things that are happening, it could be things that, that, that are hard to endure or persecute, whatever it is, when that trouble happens and it agitates my heart, creates angst and worry and consternation, it may be revealing idols in my life. I think what he's saying is, what agitates my, this is worth writing down, no slide. What agitates my heart points to what has my heart. See, Keller says in his book, an idol is something we can't live without. An idol is anything that is so central, so essential to your life that should you lose it, and we've lost some things these last two years, your life would feel hardly worth living. If I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. That's why it's so important, guys, for us to allow this moment to teach us because many of us are frustrated with what we've lost these last two years. And I'm not minimizing that, but we're frustrated. And I think what Jesus might be saying is our troubled hearts might be exposing what our faith was in. And whatever we lost might be what our faith was in because our hearts are so troubled, agitated, fearful, whatever it might be. And our faith was actually in those things we lost and possibly not Jesus. Whether that be money, whether it be comfort, whether it be convenience, whatever that might be, whether that be an ideology. <laughs> you see... Being devoted to the kingdom does not eliminate trouble. Being devoted to his kingdom, in fact, it might, it might exasperate it. It might increase it. There might be more trouble because I'm a follower of Jesus. But the true disciple of Jesus trusts the promise of the king. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And his promise is this. This is not our permanent home. He says, don't get worked up. This is not your permanent home if you're a follower of Jesus. It, to me, I think about it this way. Raise your hand if you are renting, like renting, or ever have rented. Raise your hand if you, you've ever, oh, it's just participation, right? Raise your hand if you've ever rented and now you own. Like, they're two different things. Like, my wife and I, when we started, we, we rented apartments, right? We, we, we rented places, and when you rent place and things go bad, uh, you want to be responsible in the apartment, care for it. You want to be a good manager of it. But when something goes bad, what do you do? You call the owner, the landlord. And, and, and then, then you're at peace because he's going to come fix it. It's on his dime. Right? I'm just renting. I'm going to take care of it. I want to make sure I'm responsible with the apartment. But the water heater goes out. Hey, Festus, uh, landlord, can you come fix my water heater? Okay, got it. We'll see you this afternoon. When you own it, different story. Water heater goes down, you wait for somebody to fix it, and it's like, it's on you, right? I, I, I think that's what Jesus is saying. This is not our permanent home. And, and sometimes what gets us worked up is because we act like this is our permanent home. And he's like, when that happens, somehow we've lost sight of the king and his kingdom and the promise and therefore the peace re the peace goes 
because I don't trust the promise in the presence of the king. Somebody sent me this. Uh, they had no idea what I was speaking on this week, but it's this t-shirt. <laughs> I love it. Maybe you ought to go buy them. Normal isn't coming back, but Jesus is. <laughs> I like that, right? That's what he's saying. Normal isn't coming back, but Jesus is. But then he says something else. He, he, he says, I'm coming back for my followers, but in the meantime, you see what he says in John 14? He says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father. He's living in me, who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to go to the Father, and I'll do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I'll do it. It's interesting. I, can we just make a confession? I think it's very confusing, particularly how this ends, because it seems like he's saying, just ask. Just ask me for whatever, and I'll do it. And in our upside-down world, in our upside-down way of thinking things, that seems normal to us. That's what it feels like he's saying. And then begin to ask, is that what he's saying? And the answer is, nope. If we're just being honest, nope. Like, that's why some of us have this math formula view of God. Like, if I do this, I do this, and I ask for this, then this is what's going to happen. It's not what he's saying. you got to read the whole thing. What he's saying is, those who are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, will be doing the works Jesus did. Those works that Jesus did will bring glory to God and they'll shine the lights bright on Jesus and the message of his kingdom. That's what he's saying. In fact, he even says they're going to do greater works because the Spirit of God's going to be in them collectively. They're going to be doing this as a community. What is the idol, what is he trying to expose here? What possibly could be exposed here is this. I want you to write it down. Wanting Jesus to make much of my work instead of wanting my work to make much of Jesus may reveal idols in my life. Instead of being devoted to Jesus as king, sometimes we can treat him like a mascot. Or maybe a genie to somehow bless our kingdom, to somehow help us achieve our idols. So we can reverse this, almost like instead of our work being devoted to his kingdom, we see his job as his work should be being devoted to our kingdom and the idols of our kingdom. Sometimes we treat him like a genie. How many of you ever, raise your hand out there, watch Aladdin, right? The genie? Maybe three wishes. Do you remember? Phenomenal cosmic power, right? Itty bitty living space. Sometimes we can treat Jesus that way, right? We just call on him and ask him for whatever we want, and then we put him away. We put him away when, when we're done with him. It can be easy to see him working for me to do what I want. And when that happens, cultural idolatry replaces kingdom devotion. That's why some of us are frustrated, in our, even in our Christian experience. Because if we're honest, somewhere along the way, kingdom devotion was replaced by a cultural idolatry. And we saw Jesus as the genie 
to somehow give us the things that have become idols to us. Um, Elise Fitzpatrick, a Bible, biblical counselor, says this, how can I tell if I'm worshiping the blessing that I, de that I desire or God? Two different things. If you're willing to sin and obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place. And you're functioning as an idolater. What we're devoted to many times when that happens is what we can get from God, not necessarily God. And what Jesus is saying is that when we don't trust him and embrace him and embrace this eternal perspective, our purpose here gets distorted. Our priority gets distorted, and we all of a sudden have a devotion to our kingdom and our idols instead of being devoted to his kingdom. We begin to see him working for our glory instead of our work being for his glory. That's what he's saying. You see, Jesus is exposing idols. What's he exposing in your life? Be honest. See, when I want Jesus to make much of my work instead of my work making much of Jesus, it might reveal an idol. When my heart gets troubled because of the trouble in the world, it might reveal an idol. I think there's one last thing in John 14. Beginning around verse 15, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, he'll give you another advocate. That's the Holy Spirit. Pastor Aiden talked about that. To help you. Spirit of truth. world can't accept him. Doesn't see him. Doesn't know him. But you know him. He lives with you and will be in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. It's a fascinating passage. Jesus says, if you love me, then you'll keep my commands. Love will show up in your devotion to Jesus as king and to his kingdom. Here's the problem. Loving Jesus and following Jesus in a world where upside down is normal is not always popular or culturally okay. And Jesus warned us of that. John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. That's nothing different than what happened to Jesus. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And as it is, you don't belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. What's the... What is he trying to expose here? If you're taking notes, I write it this way. When the approval and opinions of others matters more to me than obeying Jesus, it reveals idols in my life. Because obeying Jesus is being devoted to Jesus and loving Jesus. It's easy to be devoted to the approval of others. For some, it's the opinion and approval of other people that's hindering or maybe even resisting your devotion to Jesus. It's normal to go with the flow. I don't want to rock the boat. In order to fit in, we hide our devotion to Jesus, so now nobody knows I'm a follower of Jesus. In order to keep your boyfriend, you sleep with him. Because I can't imagine losing him. 
In order to get a laugh, you cross a line. In order to keep friends, you put your devotion on hold. And Jesus is like this, like, like your love for me will show up in your devotion to me, which shows up in your obedience to me. And what he's saying is that when I somehow, the opinions of others matter more, it's almost like having the secret affair on Jesus. Right? I mean, and, and the scripture uses that terminology. Imagine me saying I'm committed to and devoted to Jennifer in having a bunch of girlfriends. I'm committed to her as my wife, but I have a bunch of girlfriends. It's like crazy. It's like hard to even get your head around. I think that's kind of what he's saying. It becomes normal for us to just make Jesus a part of our life. He fits in on this part, but not the priority of our life. Being devoted to Jesus and his kingdom means being devoted to the king. Listen, you can be devoted to Jesus and his kingdom without being a jerk. Honestly. You don't have to be like a jerk, a, a, a Bible-thumping, I'm-going-to-be-weird kind of person. But you cannot be devoted without being devoted to the king. You can't be devoted to his kingdom without being devoted to, his, to the king. And somehow being devoted to the king shows up in being more like the king. Allowing him to transform who you are. You see, being devoted to his kingdom, guys, as we look over the cultural ridge, must replace our cultural idolatry. Let me ask you a couple questions and then we're done. Are you troubled? Is your heart troubled, agitated, whether it be anger, fear, worry, just total paralyzed by what's this world coming to? It might be revealing idols in your heart. And being devoted to his kingdom is realizing I can take him at his word. This is not my permanent home. Trouble doesn't surprise me in the world. It doesn't need to somehow rob me from the peace that I can experience knowing this is not my permanent home. What about this? Are you frustrated maybe at God, at Jesus? Because he, he's not the genie that's coming through like you thought. <laughs> and somehow, he's not working for you so that you can have the idols that you want to be a part of your kingdom. Are you more devoted to what he can do for you than you are for him? It might be revealing an idol in your life. Let me ask you this. Do others' opinions matter more to you than obeying and being devoted to Jesus? Just look at your life. Are there areas of compromise, areas where you'll cross the line to keep a relationship, to get a laugh, are there ethics and things that you'll kind of skimp on in order to get ahead so that the boss will give you the promotion? I mean, are others' approval and their opinions more important to you than Jesus? It may be revealing an idol in your life. 
and as we run into what's next and away from what's normal. Kingdom devotion and devotion to the king must replace cultural idolatry. Will you pray with me? God, I love you. I pray that you'd help us to see your incredible, immense love for us. And then that our response would be to give our heart, life, all that we are to you in devotion to you as our king and in devotion to your kingdom, seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. We love you. I pray as a result that you would restore effectiveness, influence, impact, saltiness to the church of Jesus Christ so that our lives and efforts might point to the king, namely Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.